Police move in to clear protesters. How police handled the arrests. And how the disruption is playing out on Wet'suwet'en territory. You can feel the anger. It's all stemming from anger. Trapped in COVID-19 quarantine. It has been suggested that I use my vacation time. A woman worried about the cost of being forced into isolation. And a crash survivor who saw very little of her settlement. It's not really sufficient enough for me to live. Why lawyers took most of the money ICBC paid out. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Another day of protests, this time resulting in a number of arrests as demonstrators supporting Indigenous rights defy court injunctions. Our coverage tonight begins with Catherine Urquhart, who's live at Hastings and Clark, where the traffic is once again flowing, Catherine, after police moved in this afternoon. That's right, Chris. Traffic is back to normal here at this key intersection in East Vancouver. Commuters undoubtedly relieved about that. Approximately 14,000 vehicles travel through this intersection every day. Protesters brought that traffic to a standstill yesterday. That is, until police arrived here just after noon today. The Vancouver police will arrest and remove any person who violates this court order as you are in contempt of court. A warning from Vancouver police to several dozen protesters assembled at Hastings and Clark. I have the paper copy and I want to say your injunction. Okay, thank, thank you, you, sir. Stop the oil tankers. After blocking the intersection for 24 hours in support of hereditary chiefs fighting the coastal gasling pipeline, they needed to move or be arrested. So you're willing to stay there? Yourself as well. yeah. Additional warnings followed during the noon hour, with police reminding blockaders they had to comply with the B.C. Supreme Court injunction. I stand with the Indigenous peoples of Canada. I support them. All right, so Even if it means getting arrested. Even if it means having to get arrested. Most stepped off the road and onto surrounding sidewalks, but not all. A woman was the first person arrested. Two more women followed. Then two men. The final protester lied down in the intersection. Police forced to carry her as they took her into custody. It was a less confrontational scene in Abbotsford where about a dozen demonstrators barricaded two rail lines overnight. Protesters carried a banner that read, Shut Down Canada. They took down their blockade before noon and no one was arrested. We're packing up for now. Where are you going? Stay tuned. <laughs> okay. All right, Catherine, back to where you're standing right now. A number of people taken into custody. Do you know if there are any charges laid against any of them yet? Well, Chris, just moments ago, I received an email from the VPD, and I'm going to read it to you. It says the six people arrested, two males 
and four females, all adults, have been released on an appearance notice to attend court at a later date. All of the people were brought to the VPD jail and were there for just over an hour. They were arrested for contempt of court for going against the court-ordered injunction. So that's the very latest on those six people that were arrested here at Hastings and Clark. Chris? Court date coming up. Okay, thanks very much, Catherine. Catherine Ricard reporting live for us tonight. Now, several dozen protesters remain camped out on the front steps of the B.C. legislature. The group has been occupying the steps for more than 24 hours, despite the existing injunction that's supposed to prevent protesters from blocking entrances to the building. The protesters argue they're obeying the letter of the law because they're at the legislature's ceremonial entrance, not the doors that are used by MLAs and government staff. A number of them spent the night on the steps and say they have no plans to move. Victoria police are on scene, but so far they haven't made any moves to enforce the injunction or make arrests. The injunction is so vague, it's addressed to literally anybody and there's no definite time frame. So how are we supposed to understand the, uh, the way in which it will be enforced? We are not here as protesters, we are here as Indigenous peoples upholding our laws the laws that have been handed down to us through generations that we hold dear to our hearts. You know, we are here because we are obligated to, out of the safety of our families, our loved ones. Out of what's being called an abundance of caution, the clerk of the legislature has closed the building to the public for now. Meantime, there is another criminal investigation underway in northern B.C. RCMP alleging tires on several patrol cars were slashed during the removal of another blockade late last night. It has the potential to derail efforts to ease tensions in Wet'suwet'en territory. Sarah McDonald has the latest. It seems just as one blockade is dismantled, another appears. With even more moxie than the one before it, arrests on Indigenous land in Ontario and in northern B.C. Monday, only adding fuel to the fire of a national crisis that's quickly veering off the rails. The injunction says that we're, we're, we're trespassing on CN property. Um, as far as we're concerned, CN is trespassing in our territory. The most violent and dramatic scenes yet, captured by journalists and cameras kept at a distance on Tayandanega Mohawk territory. And hours later on the land of the Gitsan, a longtime ally and neighbor of Wet'suwet'en Nation. More than a dozen people arrested on these tracks late Monday, including three indigenous leaders standing firmly on one side of a dispute over pipeline politics, bringing rail traffic and parts of the Canadian economy to a screeching halt. We've been working with rail carriers to ensure uh, that many trains continue to use alternate routes. It's Gotta, gotta get worse before it gets better. This Gitsan chief, one of those detained Monday. As RCMP moved in to clear a blockade erected in solidarity with his hereditary counterparts. The Gitsan nation couldn't very well stand by and let them uh, take all the heavy lifting. We feel like we're being bullied by people who are supposed to be our leaders. But a large faction of Wet'suwet'en people like Bonnie George, banking on the benefits promised by that lucrative proposed natural gas pipeline, say they're the ones saddled with the burden of those blockades. The ones that are protesting across Canada and downtown Vancouver, they have jobs to go back to and our people don't have jobs. 
Many here welcome the economic opportunity offered by the multi-billion dollar project, given the green light by band councils and backed by the provincial and federal governments. Voices largely drowned out in the battle over unceded territory at the center of a national tug of war. Sarah McDonald, Global News, New Hazleton, B.C. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry now. Keith, despite the blockades, LNG Canada says it's full steam ahead on construction. Yeah, I think lost in all the focus on blockades and protests and such, Chris, is the fact the pipeline's being built. Uh, the construction uh, schedule is being met. Uh, so there's a lot of work being done in places like Kitimat, a lot of prep work on the ground in preparation for the LNG terminal to be eventually be located there once the pipeline is built. So again, yesterday, the CEO of uh, LNG Canada, Peter Zebedee, released an interesting statement, I think in wake of all the protests and in wake of tech resources pulling out of that big oil sands project in Alberta. Offering a reassurance that everything is going apace as planned. I want to assure British Columbians and Canadians that LNG Canada is continuing to hit critical construction milestones and is on track to deliver first cargo before the middle of this decade. While there are some who want to hashtag shut down Canada, there are many more who want to hashtag build Canada up. An extraordinary statement from the CEO there. We caught up with Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth in the hallway, who reminds everyone the NDP is a strong supporter of this project and he's not wavering in that. I think uh, uh, LNG uh, Canada recognizes that this is, uh, you know, that there are challenges uh, and that their commitment uh, is, is, you know, I'm glad to see that in, in a letter. As I said, the government has supported this project from the beginning. Um, we understand that, uh, you know, that the, the benefits this will bring to, uh, uh, to Northern British Columbia and to uh, First Nations communities. Uh, the number of, uh, of First Nations bands and uh, elected chiefs who support this, this, uh, this project is, uh, is quite remarkable. So I'm not sure, Chris, how if anyone knows how this is going to end, whether these protests will peter out or whether they'll ramp up in intensity. I think we're in uncharted territory here, and it's going to be fascinating to see how it unfolds over the next days, weeks, maybe even months. And we know you'll be there doing it, covering it for us. <laughs> Thanks very much, Keith. Appreciate it. Now to the Cullen Commission into casino money laundering. It continues, and on day two, Criticism of the earlier investigation known as the German Report. Two key players from the province's gaming industry say that 2018 document is full of inaccuracies and omissions. John Waugh has the details. As the Cullen Commission digs into how British Columbia became a haven for dirty money, two players from the BC Lottery Corporation are hoping to clear their names. Mr. Lightbody made active efforts to be responsive to money laundering concerns in the gaming sector. The president and CEO of BCLC insisting in his opening statement he did not turn a blind eye to bags of criminal cash coming into casinos. Mr. Lightbody has been and is committed to being part of the solution. His former chief compliance officer Robert Croker downplaying the problem, insisting casinos were not part of the money laundering crisis known around the world as the Vancouver model. There are errors and falsities in the public discourse surrounding this issue, leading to a skewed understanding of casinos' vulnerabilities to money laundering. The two embattled gaming executives instead putting Peter German and his government commissioned report on casino money laundering on trial. Dr. German never uh, met with Mr. Croker individually or sought out Mr. Croker's detailed knowledge of BCLC. Mr. Lightbody has identified a number of inaccuracies in the report and frailties in its underlying methodology. The hearings have resumed, all right. 
Well, the German report is included in its terms of reference, questions about its credibility will not affect the Cullen Commission. We're neither uh, cynical and, and uh, dismissive of Dr. German's work, but I think on the other hand, we're not blindly accepting of it. From the opening statements, it's clear some parties are hoping to rewrite history. Participants were saying we've done this or that properly or that others bear fault on something. The evidence was what's going to allow our commissioner to make a decision. The Cullen Commission says evidence in cross-examination in the near future will bring out the truth. John Hua, Global News. More than a thousand tests have now been done and the total number of COVID-19 cases in BC still holds steady at seven. BC's top doctor and health minister held their regular briefing this morning. Dr. Bonnie Henry says one patient is fully recovered. The remaining six are in good condition under isolation at home. Two other British Columbians who were passengers on the Diamond Princess cruise ship are also back home and remain under federal quarantine. We are making sure that not only are we focusing on containment here right now, but we're making the preparations and the planning and starting to think more about what would happen should we get broad transmission um, and move into a pandemic. Meantime, a Metro Vancouver woman who is under quarantine after possible exposure to a coronavirus patient says she's been left without support while she can't work. The woman who does not want to be identified has been in isolation at home for more than a week, and she's worried she won't get paid. Aaron MacArthur reports. Canadians quarantined on cruise ships at an armed forces base at home. The list of people cut off from the outside world steadily growing. Seven people confirmed to have COVID-19 in B.C., dozens more being watched closely. They call me every day to check my temperature and check if I have symptoms. One woman, who we're not identifying for privacy reasons, was at Ridge Meadows Hospital at the same time as a person with COVID-19. Now she's stuck at home until the beginning of March. She can't work. She does have sick time, but her union has no policy for this kind of health emergency, and her employer has told her to take vacation time so she won't lose any pay. You know, I'm, I'm lucky that I do have sick and vacation time, but many people don't have that luxury. There is precedent for government help. In 2003, during the SARS outbreak, the federal government waived the two-week waiting period for employment insurance. Employers in this situation are encouraged to be flexible. Um, what we don't want is employees coming to work feeling pressured or, or desperate financially um, when they're symptomatic, obviously. The woman really is just the tip of the iceberg. As the caseload grows, the people stuck at home will grow too. So far, health authorities have said it hasn't been an issue. And there's a number of, of people whose workplaces have allowed them to work from home when they've been in isolation. So the contacts, for example, the people who are well. While there are major economic impacts of COVID-19, for people, the threat of missing a paycheck or a mortgage payment, a much bigger worry. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The hot pocket heiress sentenced for her role in the college admissions scandal coming up on the news hour. Also, tech giant Amazon opens its first fully functional cashierless grocery. Grab what you want and go later. There's also, uh, right now, been a lot of back and forth about the changes to ICBC rules aimed at capping the use of expert reports in cases. 
Now one crash victim is coming forward saying those changes can't happen fast enough. The woman, who we're calling Missy, suffered life-altering injuries in an accident. But even though she won her case, Richard Zussman shows us why she only saw a fraction of the money she was awarded. It's the perfect example of a broken system. An ICBC settlement claim for nearly $250,000, with the client only ending up with $70,000. It's not really sufficient enough for me to live, you know? And then considering I cannot go back to work. We are identifying this woman as Missy and concealing her identity out of fear she'll be sued by her own lawyers. The crash happened in 2008. The other driver found responsible. Still emotional speaking about it, Missy's injuries costing her more than $100,000, including an inability to work again. I feel that I was not treated right, you know. Here is a look at Missy's invoice. ICBC sent a $243,495 check. The legal fees, a little less than $165,000, including $85,000 in expert reports, minus additional fees, and Missy received just the $70,000. This bill will amend the evidence act. Her story, a prime example of why the BC government is introducing this legislation to restrict expert reports. EB says all these cases also include legal costs for ICBC. So it costs probably in the neighborhood of $300,000 in order to deliver $70,000 worth of benefits uh, to this woman, which is totally outrageous. The Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia turning down interview requests specifically about Missy's case and more broadly about restricting the use of experts. Missy's case was settled out of court. She doesn't understand why her lawyers needed nearly $100,000 worth of expert reports and assessments. I don't know why they sent me to so many specialists and they have no intention of going to court and why they have to study it when they're not going to use it. Her hope? This legislation will mean no one else needs to suffer the way she has. Richard Zuspin, Global News, Victoria. A fourth private care home in B.C. owned by a Chinese holding company has been temporarily placed under government management. It's a largely unprecedented measure, but Global's Shelby Tom explains why the health authority is stepping in and what the union representing employees at the Summerland Seniors Village say is to blame. Gail Mack says unexplained bruising, missing items and delays in receiving a custom wheelchair are just some of the issues her 94-year-old mother with dementia has experienced at the Summerland Seniors Village. It's heartbreaking. I leave here in tears lots of times. Mack relieved Interior Health is stepping in, appointing an administrator to temporarily run the 112-bed private long-term care facility for not meeting the legislated standard of care. This decision is quite significant and we take it quite seriously, so there is a quite robust process to evaluate and come to that decision. This most recent inspection report found incidents of neglect, including staff sleeping on the job, missed medications and incomplete shift reports. Another inspection revealed an employee provided seniors with boost drinks in their rooms rather than a meal in the dining room and didn't help a senior out of their bed until past noon. The union representing care staff at the facility says a chronic staffing shortage caused by low wages is making it difficult to meet the needs of residents. There is a chronic problem with unfilled vacancies, so they're having trouble recruiting care aides and LPNs. It's the fourth care home owned by Retirement Concepts in which health authorities have had to intervene in the past 
six months, the other three on Vancouver Island. It's the largest chain of private care homes in the province, and a Chinese holding company is behind it. Foreign ownership makes accountability more difficult, Whiteside says. It's much more difficult when the ownership structure is far less transparent and is offshore. So it, uh, that, that element, adding that element in, is troubling. I can't tell you uh, how disappointing this is. But BC's health minister says the government will hold the company responsible. In the meantime, we're doing what we have to do. Uh, to intervene to protect the interests of seniors. Family members like Mac are optimistic they will no longer lose sleep over the care of their loved one. Very happy, and I feel it's about time. Shelby Tom, Global News. And now that controversial proposal to deal with the homeless crisis. The regional district directors in Nanaimo are set to vote on a bylaw that would allow people to sleep overnight in some parks. But as Brad McLeod reports, critics are already fighting the idea, fearing it will only make the housing situation worse. The board for the regional district of Nanaimo will vote tonight on whether homeless people can camp in parks along the east coast of Vancouver Island. The regional district covers a large area from Bowser to the border of Ladysmith. That's about 150 parks. I think it might be a good idea to ban camping that happens in public places. Overnight camping is great for people and families who just want to like sit and be respectful of the land and but anything failing that, no. Many in Nanaimo are still sensitive to this encampment. Discontent City was torn down just over a year ago. A petition against overnight camping in the regional district already has thousands of votes. There's been some misinformation and misunderstanding. The RDN chair says they don't have a choice. A B.C. Supreme Court decision maintains the rights of homeless individuals to camp overnight in parks. The board just has to decide where they'll be allowed. We have actually identified 77% of our regional district parks, no camping. Most parks are no-goes because they're near neighborhoods or conservation areas or close to playgrounds. And in the nearly 35 parks which would allow camping... Potential camper could only be in the park between the hours of 7 p.m. and 9 a.m. It's an issue felt up and down the island. The capital region had a tent city which moved all throughout Victoria and Saanich. But both Victoria and Nanaimo recently changed their laws, allowing overnight camping in some of their parks. It is a sad commentary on the lack of facilities that we as a community, as a province, should be providing. This man says he thinks camping is a great solution, but the right is not respected by many. I have to, in some sense, agree with them, and then in another sense, I have to disagree with them just because we need more housing for the, for the homeless people. The board chair expects the bylaw changes will be approved tonight, but those concerned can check out the long list of exceptions on the RDN website. Brad McLeod, Global News. In Surrey, we have a broken down semi here on King George Boulevard in the one of the right, uh, the right left turn lane from southbound King George headed onto Bridgeview and Highway 17, causing minor delays for motorists coming off the Patello Bridge. MNP delivering the accounting, consulting and tax insights you need to be successful wherever business takes you. Find out more at MNP.ca. In Global One, I'm Amber Belzer.
Mexico's El Popocatapetl volcano continues to put on a show, yet another explosive eruption today, sending lava and ash into the early morning sky. The mountain also erupted on Sunday. El Popo, as it's known, is the fifth highest mountain in North America and one of Mexico's most active volcanoes. Well, will there be any similar fireworks in the race for the Democratic presidential nomination? It's reached a critical moment. And in tonight's last debate before the South Carolina primary, frontrunner Bernie Sanders knows that he'll be a top target of candidates that are desperate to stop his momentum. Senator Bernie Sanders now bracing for the bullseye. This is a list which will be on our website tonight of how we pay for every program that we have developed. Overnight, the Democratic frontrunner trying to fend off attacks over the price tag for some of his progressive policies. We pay for it through a rather modest tax on Wall Street speculation. The Democratic Socialist also doubling down on his controversial comments about Fidel Castro. Teaching people to read and write is a good thing. I have been extremely consistent and critical of all authoritarian regimes all over the world, including Cuba. Both issues ammunition for former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who's back in the hot seat himself after leaked audio surfaced from a 2016 event with investment bank Goldman Sachs. My first campaign platform would be to defend the banks. Where he criticized President Obama. I wrote a very backhanded endorsement of Obama um, saying I thought he hadn't done the right thing. Joe Biden's team hitting back, saying Bloomberg is still a Republican at heart. But Biden faces another threat here, billionaire Tom Steyer. You're right behind former Vice President Joe Biden. Is he who you need to be focused on here in this state? I disagree with Senator Sanders' solutions, and I think that Joe Biden is basically talking about the status quo. Bloomberg's campaign tonight defending that leaked audio, calling it a combination of jokes and an attempt to help Obama win undecided voters. But here, much of the attention is on Sanders, with establishment Democrats worried he might win. Another high-profile sentence in the college admissions scandal, this time an heir to the Hot Pockets fortune. Michelle Janavs pleaded guilty to paying $300,000 to get her children into selected colleges and universities. She was sentenced today to five months in prison, two years of supervised release, and ordered to pay a $250,000 fine. In court, she apologized for abandoning her moral compass and hurting her family and friends. And Harvey Weinstein has been hospitalized after being found guilty Monday of two sexual assault charges. The disgraced Hollywood producer is under observation at Bellevue Hospital for high blood pressure and heart palpitations. His defense team says he continues to proclaim his innocence from his hospital bed. The dictator, who was seen by thousands of Egyptians as a latter-day pharaoh, has died. Hosni Mubarak spent three decades in office before the Arab Spring uprising swept through the Middle East. He was arrested in 2011 and sentenced to life in prison for conspiring to murder hundreds of demonstrators. He was released in 2017 after being cleared of the charges. Egyptian state media says the former president died at a Cairo hospital where he had recently undergone surgery. Mubarak was 91 years old. In health matters tonight, just one day after the federal government tabled new legislation to expand access to medically assisted dying, 
The provincial government is pulling more than a million dollars in annual funding from the Delta Hospice Society. The society losing the money for refusing to provide access. Ted Chernecki reports. Since the 2016 Supreme Court of Canada's unanimous decision to allow medical assistance in dying, otherwise known as MAID, about 3,000 British Columbians have chosen to do just that in the first two years. One place where that hasn't happened recently and won't in the next 12 months is here at the Delta Hospice Society's palliative care centres. I'm announcing today that Fraser Health is requiring the 365 days notice to end their service agreement with Delta Hospice without cause. Without cause means the province will continue to pay $1.5 million to fund operations here for one year, and then it's over. Non-negotiable, says the minister. Even the buildings themselves sit on Fraser Health land at a lease rate of $1 a year. What I see is government literally stealing assets of the people of Delta that worked so hard for so many years to raise $8.5 million for this facility, and it looks like a year from now the government would be taking over the building and the assets. By far, the majority of assisted deaths occur at home in B.C., but for those already in a hospice that won't offer the service, the group Dying with Dignity says it's incredibly difficult. This is someone who went to, into hospice thinking that this would be their last place, and now they're told they have to go somewhere else, and it's a, it's a huge upheaval to the family, and, and, and I've spoken to families, and it's, it's quite an emotional event. By this time next year, those occupying any of the 10 beds here will have the right to assist to dying. Meanwhile, over at St. Paul's, even after billions of tax dollars are spent building a replacement hospital, it won't be required to perform any assisted dying because it's considered a faith-based hospital and is exempt. St. Paul's is a facility. It's not an individual. So, so bricks and mortar do not have a conscience. So we believe that the institutions should be forced to allow made to happen on site. The province insists these 10 beds aren't going anywhere. They'll stay in Ladner, just administered differently. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Still ahead, Amazon moves ahead with the store of the future. Pick up anything you want and just walk out. No more cashiers, but what about the prices? And coming up in sports, the Whitecaps get their man, bringing some stability to the roster and to his life. In Surrey, we have a broken down semi here on King George Boulevard in the one of the right, uh, the right left turn lane from southbound King George headed onto Bridgeview and Highway 17, causing minor delays for motorists coming off the Patella Bridge. MNP delivering the accounting, consulting, and tax insights you need to be successful wherever business takes you. Find out more at mnp.ca. In Global One, I'm Amber Belzer. Mexico's El Popocatapetl volcano continues to put on a show, yet another explosive eruption today, sending lava and ash into the early morning sky. The mountain also erupted on Sunday. El Popo, as it's known, is the fifth highest mountain in North America and one of Mexico's most active volcanoes. Well, will there be any similar fireworks in the race for the Democratic presidential nomination? It's reached a critical moment. And in tonight's last debate before the South Carolina primary, frontrunner Bernie Sanders knows that he'll be a top target of candidates that are desperate to stop his momentum. Senator Bernie Sanders now bracing for the bullseye. 
This is a list which will be on our website tonight of how we pay for every program that we have developed. Overnight, the Democratic frontrunner trying to fend off attacks over the price tag for some of his progressive policies. We pay for it through a rather modest tax on Wall Street speculation. The Democratic Socialist also doubling down on his controversial comments about Fidel Castro. Teaching people to read and write is a good thing. I have been extremely consistent and critical of all authoritarian regimes all over the world, including Cuba. Both issues ammunition for former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who's back in the hot seat himself after leaked audio surfaced from a 2016 event with investment bank Goldman Sachs. My first campaign platform would be to defend the banks. Where he criticized President Obama. I wrote a very backhanded endorsement of Obama um, saying I thought he hadn't done the right thing. Joe Biden's team hitting back, saying Bloomberg is still a Republican at heart. But Biden faces another threat here, billionaire Tom Steyer. You're right behind former Vice President Joe Biden. Is he who you need to be focused on here in this state? I disagree with Senator Sanders' solutions, and I think that Joe Biden is basically talking about the status quo. Bloomberg's campaign tonight defending that leaked audio, calling it a combination of jokes and an attempt to help Obama win undecided voters. But here, much of the attention is on Sanders, with establishment Democrats worried he might win. Another high-profile sentence in the college admissions scandal, this time an heir to the Hot Pockets fortune. Michelle Janavs pleaded guilty to paying $300,000 to get her children into selected colleges and universities. She was sentenced today to five months in prison, two years of supervised release, and ordered to pay a $250,000 fine. In court, she apologized for abandoning her moral compass and hurting her family and friends. And Harvey Weinstein has been hospitalized after being found guilty Monday of two sexual assault charges. The disgraced Hollywood producer is under observation at Bellevue Hospital for high blood pressure and heart palpitations. His defense team says he continues to proclaim his innocence from his hospital bed. The dictator who was seen by thousands of Egyptians as a latter-day pharaoh has died. Hosni Mubarak spent three decades in office before the Arab Spring uprising swept through the Middle East. He was arrested in 2011 and sentenced to life in prison for conspiring to murder hundreds of demonstrators. He was released in 2017 after being cleared of the charges. Egyptian state media says the former president died at a Cairo hospital where he had recently undergone surgery. Mubarak was 91 years old. In health matters tonight, just one day after the federal government tabled new legislation to expand access to medically assisted dying, the provincial government is pulling more than a million dollars in annual funding from the Delta Hospice Society, the society losing the money for refusing to provide access. Ted Chernecki reports. Since the 2016 Supreme Court of Canada's unanimous decision to allow medical assistance in dying, otherwise known as MAID, about 3,000 British Columbians have chosen to do just that in the first two years. One place where that hasn't happened recently and won't in the next 12 months is here at the Delta Hospice Society's palliative care centres. I'm announcing today that Fraser Health is requiring the 365 days notice to end their service agreement with Delta Hospice without cause. 
Without cause means the province will continue to pay $1.5 million to fund operations here for one year, and then it's over. Non-negotiable, says the minister. Even the buildings themselves sit on Fraser Health land at a lease rate of $1 a year. What I see is government literally stealing assets of the people of Delta that worked so hard for so many years to raise $8.5 million for this facility, and it looks like a year from now the government would be taking over the building and the assets. By far, the majority of assisted deaths occur at home in B.C., but for those already in a hospice that won't offer the service, the group Dying with Dignity says it's incredibly difficult. This is someone who went into hospice thinking that this would be their last place, and now they're told they have to go somewhere else, and it's a, it's a huge upheaval to the family, and, and, and I've spoken to families, and it's quite an emotional event. By this time next year, those occupying any of the 10 beds here will have the right to assist a dying. Meanwhile, over at St. Paul's, even after billions of tax dollars are spent building a replacement hospital, it won't be required to perform any assisted dying because it's considered a faith-based hospital and is exempt. St. Paul's is a facility. It's not an individual. So, so bricks and mortar do not have a conscience. So we believe that the institutions should be forced to allow made to happen on site. The province insists these 10 beds aren't going anywhere. They'll stay in Ladner, just administered differently. Ted Chernecki, Global News. A zoo in Ohio is helping a dwindling big cat population by making babies and making history. These two small cheetah cubs represent a huge milestone in conservation. They're the first of their kind, born through in vitro fertilization and embryo transfer at the Columbus Zoo. It's the third try for the process, but the first time it succeeded. A surrogate mom was used for the brother and sister because scientists wanted to create the cubs from a bloodline found in a cheetah deemed too old to breed. And speaking of animal acts, the delicate rescue effort to save the animal trapped in this hole. Coming up right after the forecast. We'll get to that in a moment. We'll check in with Christy first. And yeah, there's been a chill in the air today. Yes, I, I, you noticed it as well. I felt like today was so damp and cold, despite the fact it was about 6 degrees. Um, but the humidity level at times were at about 80%. So it really had me thinking about that saying when people say, oh, it's a damp cold. Well, there is some scientific reasoning behind it. Here's the breakdown. When the temperatures are actually below freezing, um, there's negligible effect. Warmer air can hold more moisture than colder air. So when you're below freezing, minus 5, minus 15, and the prairies are on the coast, really it would be no different in terms of how it feels on your body. But when you get close to the freezing mark or above, that's when humidity actually can play a role. Uh, it can make you feel colder because water conducts heat. So moisture would be on your skin from the air or in your jacket, for example, and it can reduce the insulation and it can also uh, allow for that heat to be conducted away from your body faster. So there is some reasoning behind this scientific reasoning when you're at this temperature. It can feel colder. And in addition to that, on uh, damp days, we tend to have a lack of sunshine. That makes it feel a little colder still. So if you're wondering about that, yes, it did feel cold today and it would have been feeling colder than what it would be in the prairies. All right, so we are going to see the rain easing off. It is already, so a bit of a break for us tomorrow, but we've got another system on deck. You can expect that rain to push in by tomorrow evening and we will linger through your Thursday. Tomorrow, though, the bulk of the rainfall will happen along the coast. Inland regions, Prince George, uh, Caribou, you will see some flurries in the morning, but it should ease off in the afternoon. 
uh, Okanagan dry tomorrow. And for the south coast, we'll see rain by the afternoon areas in these areas here. But for our region, not until the evening hours. So mostly dry day for you tomorrow. But then we're back into the rain on Thursday, dry on Friday, back into the rain Saturday, dry on Sunday. That's your week, everyone. And we'll top things off tonight with, of course, your central windows, weather window. We're still hiding, lighting the look back at 2010. Great shot of some Paralympian uh, Olympian gold medal athletes. How fun. Great memories. <laughs> okay, thanks, Christy. Well, it wasn't your average animal rescue in the town of Whitford in Wales. This time, the victim was an award winner. Way down at the bottom of that deep hole is Flo, a three-year-old mountain pony that has won a number of medals in pony shows. She'd fallen into an old mine shaft that had been overgrown by roots. A digger was called in to very gently scoop away the dirt to give Flo a chance to climb out. She's out. She's out. She made it. After climbing out, Flo happily trotted off. No worse for wear. Maybe a shower before the next show. I would bet. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, very quickly, a reminder, it's Pink Shirt Day tomorrow. Don't forget, you can pick up your pink T-shirt uh, down at London Drugs or at pinkshirtday.ca. Funds raised go towards anti-bullying programs through the CKNW Kids Fund, on which I proudly serve on the board. Mm -hmm. so hopefully you'll support us. Well. Canucks in action out east tonight. Yeah, starting a road trip in Montreal, and it started pretty well. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know how long Jacob Markstrom is going to be out of action. We will know more about that tomorrow. But we do know that until he comes back, this is now Thatcher Demko's team to backstop. And it began tonight in Montreal, start of a four-game road trip that is very Canadian. Habs, Sens, Leafs, and Columbus. And the Canucks, despite falling down early 2-0, got what they needed. Two points, a 4-3 overtime win. Chris Tanev and Quinn Hughes. And then watch Quinn Hughes get cross-checked here. How is that not a penalty? Max Domi just throws him down from behind. Luckily, he was not hurt. First goal of the game, Max Domi, who despite that dirty play, did play well for Montreal, gets the puck across, and it's Paul Byron beating Thatcher Demko to make it 1-0. 40 shots on goal tonight against Demko, but his save percentage was 9.25. Look at this goal. He can't see anything. You can't blame Demko for this one. That's a Shea Weber goal. It's 2-0. Too many goalies in front of him. Travis Green calls a timeout and gets his yell on. And then after that, the Canucks improve. That's all it took. A little bit of screaming. Power play, Bo Horvat, goal. Beats Carey Price from the high slot, and it's 2-1. Then in the second period, similar to Shea Weber's goal, Carey Price screened badly, and the puck gets all the way through. It's an Alex Edler goal. It is 2-2. Two Unlucky bounce here for Quinn Hughes, right off of him to Jordan Wheel. The North Vancouver kid scores against the old hometown team. That makes it 3-2 for Montreal, but another Canuck power play goal. This time Jake for Tannen. Price thinks he made the save, and he did, but the puck kept climbing until it found the back of the net. So 3-3. Canucks had many chances to score after that fan and a lot of brilliant chances, but they didn't fan here. And who is it? It's Tyler Toffoli. Think how bad things would have been if Brock Besser had gotten hurt after the trade deadline. Because he got hurt early enough, Tyler Toffoli is here. Drake with his 
belts. Raptors Bucks. Watch this by Chris Boucher. The follow jam. I like that. Third quarter, last time we checked, Milwaukee has an eight-point lead on the Raptors. Well, being a pro soccer player can be a rather vagabond lifestyle, playing for various teams around the world, and such was the case for Whitecaps forward Tosaint Ricketts, who came to Vancouver last year after playing in Lithuania. He has also played for teams in Romania, Finland, Norway, Israel, Tunisia, Turkey, Bulgaria, as well as Toronto. So when he was given a contract extension by the Whitecaps today, he was more than happy. Of course, it's uh, it's something I, I, I haven't had uh, the luxury to have in the past. Um, you know, I've, I've ran into a few unfortunate situations with clubs not paying on time and uh, things a lot of play, uh, people don't know about. But um, for, you know, for, the, for this organization to give me that stability, it's, uh, I'm so grateful. And it's, it's priceless for me at this moment. The way the league is set up and now the, the roster, salary cap, um, the becomes a very valuable piece. So... We like everything that he's brought since he arrived there, being a team guy first, and it's a good example for everybody, so we're happy for him. Maybe just talk about that stability, how, how nice it is to have stability when you have a family and going through the situations that you went through, like say when you didn't get paid for yeah. doing a job. It's, uh, it, it means so much. You know, um, Like I said, I'm grateful, and to have that stability, to know that you, you have a home for the next uh, two years, it's... Um, it's, it's something that I don't take for granted, and I'm going to continue to work and show my value and uh, make them not regret the choice. All right, Champions League soccer, Chelsea, Bayern Munich. It's already 2-0 Bayern, and watch Alfonso Davies. The speed, and then across to Robert Lewandowski, one of the great scorers. Take another look. Look at the speed. Getting by, guys, avoiding checks, and then... Deaf little pass. 3-0 the final for Byron over Chelsea. Thanks in part to number 19, Alfonso Davies. Making it look pretty easy for a young guy. I mean, he was very good here, obviously, but going over there, he has the best coaching. He has the best players to play with. He's in one of the top leagues, and you can see him learning and learning and learning and getting better with every game. He is a star. And they love him over there. Sure do, yeah. There you go. Here's your snow report for all you skiers out there. Whistler Blackcomb picked up one centimeter. Grouse did also. Cypress and Sasquatch, nothing new. Fernie one. Kicking Horse one. Big White is the winner today at seven centimeters. Silver Star one. Sun Peaks one. Apex three. Mount Washington also one. Whitewater one. Red Mountain two. And Powder King one. Coming up on ET Canada, Toronto hockey hero David Ayers takes over American TV plus Party of Five, gets a 2020 twist, and there is a new seniors version of The Bachelor. That is coming up at 7, right after the news hour. Back to you, Chris. All right, thanks very much, Cheryl. Seniors version? <laughs> yeah, really? I think they did. Okay. Well, what is their idea of seniors? Well, hmm. <laughs> I hope I'm not anywhere near that yet. All right, Amazon is taking the self-checkout option to the next level. It's getting more serious about its brick-and-mortar retail ambitions with its first-ever Amazon-branded grocery store that's a lot different than any other store. It's in Seattle. At this Amazon Go grocery store, there are familiar sights and sounds missing. No checkout lines, no reaching for your wallet. Instead, you scan your Amazon Go app as you enter the store, and the cameras up above and weight sensors in the shelves, you can pick up... Anything you want and just walk out. Then your Amazon account is charged. 
you walk in and then you just pick up stuff and you walk out. It was kind of weird to look up and see like the sensors. There's a produce section, but no scales here. Instead of your typical grocery store, which sells your fruits and veggies by the pound, this one sells by the item. So how do the prices compare to a nearby grocery store? A bottle of Heinz ketchup at Amazon Go is 30 cents cheaper. A pack of LaCroix, $1.50 less. And Tide detergent, a savings of more than $3. It really remains to be seen whether the technology is good enough to supplant cashiers in those larger environments. That doesn't sit well with a major labor union firing back and calling Amazon a clear and present danger to millions of good jobs. The retail giant says it's both incorrect and misleading to suggest that Amazon destroys jobs, adding that its jobs come with great compensation and benefits. Retail analysts expect to eventually see this checkout list technology at Whole Foods owned by Amazon. And 7-Eleven is already testing a similar concept at its Texas headquarters. This as more stores cash in on a cashier-free future. Jolene Kent, NBC News, Seattle. Just walk out. I'm not keen. It'd feel like stealing, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. I'm not keen on this. <laughs> I mean, I like a lot of things about technology. There's some things I think, no, 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 you've gone too far now. Mm-hmm. I like having cashiers. I do I too. It's know. jobs. Fish. It provides jobs. I get that. But I also like speed and efficiency. Yeah. Uh, as the mother of two boys, yeah, I can totally so. understand why. So we just got to figure out how to have people and speed. <laughs> That's right. Uh, last word on weather before we go. Sure. So we will see the rain ease off if it hasn't already in your area. But by tomorrow evening, it pushes back in. So it's on and off. Wednesday looks dry. Friday looks dry for the most part, other than the evening hours. And then Sunday looks dry. That's your plan there, everyone. All right. (laughs) And uh, hopefully it stays dry for Pink Shirt Day tomorrow morning. We'll see you during your commute. Corner of Granville and, what, Georgia? I guess that's where I'll be hanging out tomorrow. Right. Have a good night.